This is the History of Psychology Laboratory. My name is Christopher Green, and I'm from York University in Toronto, Canada. The History of Psychology Laboratory is a new podcast series. We like to call it by its near acronym, Hoopla. Hoopla. In each episode, we'll take original interviews with experts in the field and combine them with discussion among members of the laboratory in order to explore more deeply important issues from psychology's past. In this, the first episode, we will be looking at the history of the 19th century mental asylum. With me here uh, in the History of Psychology Laboratory is... Jennifer Bazaar. And Jennifer will be the director of today's episode, which is on asylums, and also from the lab, who will help us uh, discuss these topics, are... Jeremy Berman, also from York. And JCM. There's, there's all this uh, uh, different language that goes around these issues. Uh, now the preferred term is mental illness. In the 19th century, the preferred term was madness. That's now considered to be or crazy or lunatic. Um, these are now considered to be somewhat pejorative terms. But in the time... At the time, they weren't. They were not only just being used by, by the everyday person on the street, um, but they're also being used by the, the medical community, both inside the asylums and outside the asylums. Um, it begins with lunatic is an appropriate term. Um, so you see institutions that are founded and are called either the provincial lunatic asylum, if you're somewhere like Canada, or the state lunatic asylum, um, depending on, you know, again, your location. Um, and eventually that you start to see a transition. Um, and insanity t- uh, becomes the more preferred term. And then eventually it's the same with asylum. Asylum um, is the term that's used for a long time, and then eventually hospital comes to replace it. This is another issue, uh, a vocabulary mm-hmm. issue we should discuss. Now we use the term psychiatry for medical physicians whose specialty is in mental illness, but it's a fairly modern term. It's a, it's a 20th century term. Back in the 19th century, people who ran asylums, people who treated lunatics or the mad, what are they called? They were originally called medical superintendent or superintendent, depending on um, whether or not they were actually a physician. Uh, a lot of the Quaker institutions, they weren't physicians, so they were just a superintendent, whereas the other places were trained physicians, and so they were medical superintendents. Um, and then they eventually adopt the term psychiatry, um, which was a German term that was adopted in the English language roughly around the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, they also used the term to describe the profession for a period of time in the 19th century as alienism. Alienist, an alienist, an is somebody alienist. who treats. So, is superintendent more an administrative role, and alienist is more of a therapeutic role, or were the superintendents involved in therapeutics as well? The superintendents were; they considered themselves alienists. Um, but later on, as we move, to, especially towards the 20th century, when psychiatry uh, becomes a term that that's used um, retrospectively, they called the superintendents. Oh, you just superintend; you don't have a specialty. Even though at the time in the 19th century, they believed that they they were the specialists um, treating insanity. Asylums have been around for so long. It's a word that's that's so um, entrenched in in our language, in the English language, that we kind of think they've been around forever, but asylums are actually not something that that have always existed. They rose into existence at a particular time and and sort of went out of existence at another particular time in response to things that were going on in the the wider world. Um, Um, Asylums usually get dated to the 19th century, and the history is told from roughly the end of the 18th century with with Tuke and Pinnell, and then you get the rise of the asylum through the 19th century, and you get a slow decline into the 20th century. Okay, so we have uh, interviewed some people um, who are experts on the history of the asylum, and uh, we'd like to introduce one of those right now. 
I'm Andrew Skull. I am at the University of California, San Diego, and I am in the sociology department and also in the science studies program. So we asked him whether asylums are a 19th century phenomenon. Um, well, actually, asylums obviously have an older history than the 19th century, but I think in many ways, if, if one takes Foucault's infamous label of a great confinement of the insane, that applies much more obviously to the 19th century than any, any time before. Do we know anything about Foucault and the great confinement? <laughs> Michel Foucault was a French historian and philosopher from the 1960s through the 70s, and he died in the early 1980s, as I recall. Um, and his, uh, not his very first book, but his first major book was called, well, in English, uh, the English translation was Madness and Civilization. The original French, do you remember the original it's French book? Folie et des raisons. So madness and unreason, unreason. Is, would be a direct translation. And it was an extremely influential book, both in French and English in its time. And Foucault's thesis was that in the 17th century, there was something called the Great Confinement. Does and this is what the states attempt to manage individuals by sort of shutting them away in various institutions? The, the, the state, the king, in effect, decided there were certain classes of people who couldn't be allowed to run around freely in society, and they would have to be confined in various kinds of institutions. And, and Foucault called that the Great Confinement. But I think there's been a lot of work since that calls into question whether or not there was a Great Confinement, and even if there was, whether it really only was limited to France and wasn't a European-wide phenomenon, as Foucault implied. So Skull's saying if there's a really great confinement, at least in England, it's the 19th century with the opening of the asylum, the new asylums. That that really takes shape. That's right. Um, well, obviously, there's still asylums in the 18th century. So did you ask Andrew Skull about that? So I think the earliest origins of the asylum tended to be as a way of coping, an alternative way of coping, tended to be more for rich families, because obviously they were the ones who could afford to pay. There were exceptions, however, with people who were particularly violent or hard to deal with, and those were uh, even uh, parishes would provide, if necessary, for those people simply to get them out of, out of the way. So it's a very small-scale phenomenon in the, in, in the 18th century. It's uh, also a period that's marked by, in, in Britain, the uh, growth of charity asylums. Uh, but it's easy to exaggerate if you start talking about those asylums. The, the, the reality is most of madness uh, through into the early 19th century is very much still a domestic phenomenon. Andrew Skull's histories are about Britain, and we also have an interest, obviously, in North America here. Um, but the stories in France and Germany and Spain and Italy, I suppose, are, are quite different, yeah? A lot of different countries have a, uh, a version of asylum history or institutional history for the treatment of, of insanity, madness, these kinds of things. But um, one of the things that's unique about Britain is that madhouse system that you get in the in the private madhouse system that you get in the 18th century that eventually leads into the 19th century um, and is hugely influential on what happens in the 19th century as well as then what gets transferred to North America. No, but once you're as soon as you're talking about profit, then you're recruiting. You're not recruiting patients anymore. You're recruiting customers. But he's talking about 
commercial society generally. He's not talking about commercial society and madness in that clip. Well, he is to an extent, because he's talking about private madhouses. And private madhouses are a small institution that's being run by a private individual who is taking in paying patients. And I don't even know if he would call them patients at that point. They're taking in paying individuals um, that the family has identified as having some sort of problem that they've identified as insanity or they've identified as something that they're not going to deal with at home, and they're putting them into these institutions. And that's why Skull is highlighting the fact that it was more for the rich. Well, so for the 18th century, the the, the what the people who were responsible for the... The patient, the client, the whatever, what, are we, what word are we going to use? The mad person. The, the people who are responsible for the mad person in the 18th century were the ones who were paying the bill, presumably. And come the 19th century in these large public institutions, there had to be a different process of admission. They had to decide who was going to be in and who was not going to be in. Otherwise, they just would have turned into poorhouses instantaneously, right? Well, one of the ways that medical superintendents are characterized in the 19th century is a little bit in the way of the madhouse uh, owner is that you're getting somebody who is in charge of a large institution and who is almost recruiting people into their, uh, into their treatment. Um, and as David Wright explained to us, that's actually not what's going on. It's really more of a family involvement. Okay, well, my name is David Wright. Uh, I currently hold the Hannah Chair in the History of Medicine at McMaster University. And starting in August, I will be a Canada Research Chair in mental health history and professor of history at McGill University in Montreal. What clearly happened was that you had communities, you had households in, in which individuals started behaving in strange and disordered ways. You know, they're, they're crying uncontrollably over seemingly nothing. Uh, they're they're uh, talking about people out to get them, right? They, they're hallucinating. Uh, they're, they're attempting suicide. They're becoming grandiose. You know, there's all sorts of things going on. And the family attempts to, in communities and networks of kin, attempt to accommodate the person. And at a certain point, a decision is made by some person or some group of people that, no, we cannot handle that individual anymore, and the person has to be institutionalized. It's at that point that they call in a medical individual who's not a medical superintendent because in many jurisdictions they were barred from certifying people to their own institutions. These were local general practitioners who came in, interviewed the family, interviewed the individual, signed off on the certificate, at which point the person was then transported um, to either another secure facility on, on, on route to the asylum or they were transported directly to the asylum. Uh, so it was, it was a... It was a social process that really, at the timing of which was determined by the family, the testimony was given by the family, the, uh, the rendering of someone being insane was, was, was uh, the result of a general practitioner, a non-specialist, listening to the family and the person concerned, uh, at which point the person would be conveyed to, to the asylum. What, what is it about certification and certifying? What, what are the rules here? The, the advantage of certification is that it, it puts a layer between the profit motive and the person who is ultimately responsible for managing the mad or the insane or the sufferer. So as soon as you put multiple layers of certification in, we don't have a, a mad rush, if you will, a mad rush to gather up as many people as we can to throw them into what effectively would then be jail for money. Um, that one certificate of insanity would not actually be enough to, uh, to get you admitted into the asylum. You required a minimum to... Uh, certificates of insanity from different physicians, um, and depending on the year or the location, sometimes up to three certificates of insanity. Um, and so that was intended as a way to protect people from being falsely incarcerated. 
I think we need to say what a certificate of insanity is. All he says is that, it's, that they're signing off on some certificate. What is this certificate? Well, the certificate is a form that the um, local physician was to fill out in which they gave the information provided by the family about the individual, what behaviors they were exhibiting, and they also gave information from the individual if they were able to interview them. Sometimes um, that includes a description of their behavior, sometimes it includes descriptions of their appearance or their clothing or their manner mannerisms. So it's not the case that previously acceptable behaviors are being pathologized. That's the myth. We're not making a market, right? Andrew Skull. The most important, I argued, was a broadening of the, of the idea of what constituted insanity, the scooping up of more people in the net. And um, some people misinterpreted that as an argument that um, psychiatry had, as professional imperialism, done that. And I very explicitly, if you go back and look, uh, said, no, the key to all this was widening lay definitions of what was going on, particularly families' definitions of what was going on. So how did we get from the point where families had this intuition that behavior had become so abnormal that it had to be treated in an outside institution to the point where medical and legal professionals had a formalized set of diagnostic categories by which they would distinguish among different kinds of madness? Well, the diagnostic categories for the, mid <laughs> the 19th century aren't terribly exciting, right? So you can actually, you basically have mania, you have melancholia, um, you have dementia, and you have idiocy, right? So that's basically it. So, and 80% of the people are, are, are well, 75, 80% of the people are going to be labeled as being suffering from mania. Mm. By the 1880s and onwards, you start to get a bit of differentiation. So some medical superintendents start to talk about uh, mania with depression as a precursor to sort of bipolar disorder or what have you. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's a shift in terminology here across time, from melancholia to depression to the bipolar. Are we playing different language games here, or is there something bigger going on? It's both. We actually have to think about them as separate categories without a direct link, but they also have overlaps historically. So this all becomes really problematic, which is what Wright is trying to highlight, and he says that we should look less at diagnosis and more at the symptomology. And it, and it does feed into this broader discussion about changing psychiatric diagnose, diagnostic categories over the last 150 years, which are changing every decade, practically. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can lead you, I think, to a false conclusion. That is, well, obviously it's so arbitrary, so therefore the process of institutionalization is arbitrary. And this gets back to my earlier discussion. I'm saying, no, this is something that's happening at the end of a long social process. What was important are, are particular symptoms. And I, I, symptoms are perhaps not the best behavior symptoms, but identifiable. So, you know, when someone attempts suicide, this was clearly frightening to households, but understandable, right? People knew what suicide was in the 19th century, the 18th century, 17th century. People knew what suicide was, right? People understood the relationship between suicide and melancholia. But how are people actually being treated within the asylums? I actually interviewed somebody about this very question a couple of years ago. His name is Gerald Grobe, and he's from Rutgers University. Now, the mental hospitals came into existence in the early 19th century because the assumption uh, was that moral or psychological treatment uh, could reverse the course of an illness. Uh, the belief was that a variety of factors in an individual's life uh, bad marriages, uh, business failures, personal shortcomings, bad habits such as masturbation or alcohol could cause mental illness. So if you removed a person to a different environment and brought to bear appropriate 
influences on them, the course of the illness could be reversed. Are we just removing daily hassles? Are we taking people out of their problem environment? It, we are. Um, we're removing them from their environment in order to go to an asylum, and an asylum was intended to be set up outside of the cities in the countryside, um, and everything about the asylum was a part of treatment. The building itself, the interior of the building, the view from the building, but there was also a lot of elements that patients were expected to engage in, um, things like they were to be given meaningful work. Uh, it was gender-specific, so women were to work indoors doing things like knitting or sewing and making the patient clothing, um, while men were to work outside doing a lot of manual labor if they were able. Um, there were also activities that were provided, religious services, and Skull had something to say about this in our interview. The early years of the asylum are a time of enormous optimism, utopian claims about what it will be possible to do with the mentally ill by mobilizing um, the new forms that come to be called moral treatment. Uh, now, clearly, uh, there's something to those claims, it seems to me. I think the early moral treatment institutions uh, did achieve um, some interesting things. The problem, as always, was routinizing charisma or transforming what were um, atypical institutions, often very small institutions, on it into a broader scale. And in fact, once moral treatment becomes the basis for the new reformed asylums, it rather quickly passes over into what Anne Digby's called moral management rather than moral treatment. And it becomes a tool for the more effective management of the mad rather than um, fulfilling its, its early promise. So was moral management a new form of treatment? No, it's actually a term that historians have used to explain the decline of moral treatment throughout uh, as the 19th century comes to an end. And what they're trying to get at is that time was increasingly spent on managing the daily lives of the insane and on controlling their day-to-day -day activities. Okay, but I still don't understand why asylums come to be so prominent in the 19th century. Clearly, it's a multi multifaceted problem. It's not, a, it can't be reduced to some single solitary, this is the prime mover kind of cause. There are a bunch of things that are necessary preconditions for the rise of asylums and for their demise. Um, there are a bunch of things um, which also contribute in less significant ways. And you have to look at the interaction of a multitude of forces to comprehend, it seems to me, what's going on. And, and it's perfectly reasonable that sensible people can argue about the relative weight to place on these things. Uh, it's the people who deny any role for any of these things that it strikes me, or whether they be a Thomas Sass at one end or somebody who's a blind biological determinist on the, on the other end, or um, somebody who says, oh, it's all a matter of social control, or somebody who says, not at all, it's only a matter of therapeutics. So there are a lot of different explanations about what led to the rise of the asylum in the 19th century, and there were a lot of different factors at play, and we asked David Wright if he would uh, go over some of these for us. Now, the general observation is mental hospitals are built round about the same time as countries are industrialized. So what's the relationship, if, if any? Now, there were some early writers, scholars in the field, such as Gerald Robb, who thought the connection was mainly urbanization. Right? So he sort of thought, okay, industrialization is occurring, urbanization 
and urbanization is, is creating the need for mental hospitals for a variety of reasons. People are, you know, strangers are all sort of living in the same same area, and these sort of community and kin networks are breaking down, and people are sort of, I don't know, you know, all living in New York City and seeing crazy behavior are more likely to sort of react against it, if you see what I mean, than if you knew that crazy person your whole life, and they always acted crazy, but he was never threatened. You see what I mean, if I can generalize. Um, now, there are others who sort of said, well, this doesn't quite make sense because some of the lunatic asylums are being built not in urban areas, but in actually agrarian areas. So Andrew Skoll argues this. He said, oh, I don't quite buy that. Um, and I, I guess I tried to find a middle ground. I sort of thought, well, there, there's clearly something, something going on here, right? Uh, there, there seems to be some process between industrialization, broadly speaking, and, uh, and the emergence of carceral institutions like mental hospitals. Uh, and my suggestion was this, that during industrialization, you had a great deal of, of uh, social and familial dislocation. And I mean not only dislocation in terms of rural depopulation and urbanization, but also transatlantic migration. Uh, and I tried to argue that, that this exacerbated a whole bunch of other factors that led to institutionalization by breaking up you know, family and kin networks. So there was industrialization and urbanization contributing to the rise of asylum, but there was also state-level changes going on at the same time, and we got Andrew Skull to comment on this. As to what changes that, um, I think clearly it's connected to broader changes in the way uh, a variety of dependent populations are being handled. Uh, the movement to institutionalize the mad has to be set alongside the rise of the workhouse as a way of handling the poor, the rise of the penitentiary as a way of handling uh, the criminal. Um, so in that sense, uh, although I disagree in many ways with David Rothman's arguments, uh, Rothman is right, I think, to, to suggest that those, those developments have to be seen as, as, a, as part of a, a generalized shift. Uh, Clearly, it reflects the expanding uh, reach of the state, which is dependent upon tax revenues, uh, but also on ideological changes, because there's a lot of resistance to state intervention. To a certain extent, it sounded a bit like, like, like Andrew Skoll, um, who, with whom, who's, who's, uh, who's a wonderful colleague, but with whom I've, I've disagreed on, on several aspects. But I do think he has a point, although I think it's over-argued, that over time, um, people become a bit conditioned to the institution. So he has this wonderful turn of phrase in Museums of Madness in which he argues that this, the asylum created the demand for its own services. Something, I'm paraphrasing it, something like that. Um, but I, I do think he's got a bit of a point there. You know, I think that over time, people become conditioned to, to using the mental institution. And it becomes part of a broader culture. It becomes sort of culturally legitimate, if you see what I mean. So over time, families realize that's one of a variety of options. That reminds me of something that uh, Gerald Grobe said in the interview I did with him a couple of years ago. The second you created mental hospitals, you began to give families an alternative to have a person with a severe mental illness in a family causes tremendous tensions and uh, families when they reach the breaking point would be willing to commit members to a mental hospital. Well it sounds like everyone who was insane in the 19th century was put in an asylum. Was this in fact the case? Well this is actually a really interesting area that David Wright has done a lot of work on. 
in a lot of the literature, there's the assumption that if you were insane, you're institutionalized. If you weren't institutionalized, you weren't insane, and etc. And so, more or less, the history of madness in the 19th and 20th century is really a history of the rise and fall of the lunatic asylum. And I have tried to argue that that is is a distortion, really, of the social history of madness in the 19th and 20th century, in that there are more people being described as being idiots or lunatics in the community than in the mental hospital. On the other hand, Andrew Skull sees the role of the asylum somewhat differently. So we lived through an era roughly from the early decades of the 19th century through um, past the middle of the 20th century, where it's fair to say the asylum became the uh, uh, primary uh, response to mental illness, never the only response. Clearly this is something we can debate, and there's a reason for that. Depending on what sources you use, you're going to see a different picture. Exactly, and most of the sources that we have that relate to cases of insanity are things that come from the institutions. And so we have things like the certificates of insanity, we have their admission records, we have some patient files, and we have a lot of annual reports and bureaucratic reports, Um, but none of these tell us about treatment within the community. Let's go back to David Wright months and years before they they were admitted. And then sometimes they stay in the asylum for shorter periods of time than they were suffering prior. And, and, And they're being discharged, not cured. So they're clearly still suffering and then going back in the community. So there is a whole area of of community care, of treatment that we know exists, but is extraordinarily difficult historically to to be able to uncover, right? Because you just don't have the documentation. You can sort of get it at it through indirect means. You know it's there, you know it's happening, um, but you don't have the detail compared to the institutional histories. How do we get to the 20th century? We don't have now the asylums that that in the 19th century were prevalent everywhere, we have something different. So there's a transition that has to happen between what we've been talking about and, and how we get to today. Exactly, and there's a few different transitions going on. There's changes within the government, and there's changes within the ideas about what constituted insanity, and there's also tr- uh, changes in terms of what treatment should be offered. Gerald Grobe. So you get the passage of what's called state care acts, beginning with New York in 1890, Massachusetts a little later, in which the state says, from now on, all ill people, all, all people with mental illnesses, are the responsibility of the state. What happened there was a very peculiar thing. Local officials saw an entrepreneurial opportunity. That is, their almshouses, which in the 19th century were also old age homes, had large numbers of elderly people suffering from senility or the like. They redefined senility in psychiatric terms and began to send all of their aged residents in almshouses to mental hospitals. So in the first half of the 20th century, close to half of all first admissions are people over the age of 65. And the second you put that many elderly people who have no prospects for uh, recovery, the best that you could do is provide them with care, uh, the hospital began to be transformed into more of a custodial institution because uh, that group of patients, when you sent them there, they remained there until they died. Uh, There was no hope of getting them out. It sounds like into the 20th century, asylums had become custodial institutions where treatment and recovery were no longer possibilities. So how did we end up with mental hospitals into the 20th century? 
Well, for a large part, um, they were increasingly custodial and they were becoming overcrowded, but there was still treatment going on. However, there were new responses emerging at the beginning of the 20th century and which we were able to talk to Elizabeth Lundbeck about. My name is Elizabeth Lundbeck and I am a professor at Vanderbilt University. The Boston Psychopathic Hospital was founded in 1912 in, as an institution in contrast to an asylum. It was seen to be a short-term facility that would cure patients or for incurable patients send them on to an asylum. The focus was to be on diagnosis and short-term treatment and curability rather than on long-term anachronistically warehousing of patients. Which, so there was a critique of the asylum embedded in the founding of the psychopathic hospital. So we asked Elizabeth Lundbeck whether or not the individuals who were running the psychopathic hospitals were the same as those who were running the asylums. They self-consciously identify themselves as scientists um, and castigate asylum superintendents as nothing more than superintendents. They redefine the field of mental disorders from the 19th century model, which as they saw it, starkly dichotomize the population between the sane and the insane to a more 20th century model that arrayed everybody on a spectrum, sort of a, a quantitative model that arrayed everybody on a spectrum from normal to insane. And what distinguished people was the amounts, the quantity of a symptom that they had, um, not the symptom itself. So they've established these new mental hospitals and seem to have reconceptualized mental illness and redefined insanity as something that is no longer dichotomous to normality, but instead um, a matter of degree. But when it comes to treatment, were they in fact all that different from those in the older asylum system? It was probably quite similar in some ways, but the, the what was distinctive was that the hospital supported a cadre of social workers, psychiatric social workers, among the first in the country, um, who really got very deeply involved in patients' lives and helping patients manage their lives as well as managing patients' lives. But wasn't there some treatment going on in the hospital itself that was supposed to help to cure these people or at least treat them? Um, they thought that the actual hospital environment itself would be healing. So it was a kind of environmental therapy. That getting away from the family, getting away from the exciting causes of the illness might help patients. Um, and it was supposed to be, it was in, you know, it was in the city, so it wasn't out in the countryside. It was exciting. It was there was a lot of science going on there. They had laboratories, um, lots of staff as opposed to asylums, lots of physicians on the staff as opposed to asylums, and all that was supposed to be salutary, help, helping patients get their health back. In some respects, it sounds like the psychopathic hospital was very similar to the 19th century asylum, although it sounds like they very self-consciously identified as scientific and thought that they were advancing the field. And actually, Elizabeth Lundbeck had a really interesting reflection on that. Psychiatry has a, a, a complicated relationship to its own history, so it's always finding new truths and discarding old truths and its dark ages that's in quotes, the term is used a lot, are always right behind it. Um, and enlightenment is in the present. 
So we've come a long way. We started with uh, the 18th century uh, um, private madhouses, which were rejected in favor of these large public institutions, the asylums, through most of the 19th century. And now we're right on the verge of the modern 20th century mental hospitals, the Boston Psychopathic Hospital being a sort of transitional um, um, institution. And, and of course, with the coming of World War I in, in 1914, there was a, a whole new uh, uh, approach to mental illness, a whole new kind of mental illness. As, as hundreds of thousands of soldiers started coming back from the fronts with this new thing called shell shock, um, which really revolutionized the uh, the treatment of the mentally ill and brought a whole new class of mentally ill people into into the, into light, um, and a whole set of new institutions um, came into being with that. And I think we should probably end the episode at that point. Uh, the the 20th century, the history of 20th century uh, treatment of mental illness, as it comes to be called, and the new mental hospital um, is really a separate issue for another time. This episode of History of Psychology Laboratory was produced by Christopher Green and directed by Jennifer Bazaar. And joining us in the discussion were Jeremy Berman and J.C. Young. We'd like to thank our interviewees, David Wright, Andrew Skull, Elizabeth Lundbeck, and Gerald Grobe. The interviews were conducted live at the Joint Conference of the International Society for the History of Neuroscience and Chiron, the International Society for the History of Behavioral and Social Science, at the University of Calgary in June 2011. The interview with Gerald Grobe was conducted by phone for the earlier podcast series This Week in the History of Psychology in the fall of 2006. Join us for our next episode, which will focus on the history of comparative psychology. This is the History of Psychology Laboratory. Hoopla! (laughs) 